When the Civil War ended, the soldiers came home, but the war went on. I'm Chris Murkowski, and today we'll talk with historians Brian Matthew Jordan and Evan Rathera about their new edited essay collection, The War Went On, Reconsidering the Lives of Civil War Veterans, today on the Emerging Civil War Podcast. America is opening back up, and people are getting back out on the battlefields. Do you have copies of your favorite emerging Civil War books to take out onto the field with you when you go? They make great tour books and battlefield guides written by expert historians who know the places they're writing about, so you get a great insider's knowledge. Our latest book in the series is Helmira, the Union's most infamous Civil War prison camp, Elmira, New York by Derek Maxfield. It's brand new, so get your copy now. It's also available as an audiobook, as many other emerging Civil War titles are, with more to come, so you can listen as well as read. Your book purchases help support independent publishing and emerging historians at a time when the pandemic has put the pinch on both. Plus, you'll get great reading material and great battlefield companions. The Emerging Civil War series from Savas Beatty. You can order online at SavisBeatty.com. I'm Chris Mikowski, and welcome to this special edition of the Emerging Civil War podcast. Today, I'm pleased to talk with historians Brian Matthew Jordan, my co-editor of the Engaging the Civil War series, published in cooperation with Southern Illinois University Press, and historian Evan Rothera about their new edited essay collection, The War Went On, Reconsidering the Lives of Civil War Veterans. We recorded a video chat, which we have posted to the ECW YouTube page. What follows in this episode of the podcast is the full audio of that chat, which represents our conversation in full. I'm Chris Mikowski, and welcome to Emerging Civil War. Glad to have you with us. And I am delighted to have remote from parts far away today, my good friend Brian Matthew Jordan, co-editor of the Engaging the Civil War series, uh, published through Southern Illinois University Press. Uh, Brian is an assistant professor and newly elected chair of the history department at Sam Houston State University out in Texas. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me, Chris. Oh, delighted to have you here. And also joining us is his co-editor, Evan Rothera. Evan is an assistant professor of history at uh, the University of Arkansas at Fort Smith. Evan, welcome to Emerging Civil War. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, delighted. And Evan is on our editorial board for the Engaging the Civil War series. So we've got kind of a little Engaging the Civil War posse here. And uh, the reason I've asked Brian and Evan to join us is to talk about their new co-edited book, and the war went on, talking about the lives of veterans after the Civil War. And to Brian, I'll, I'll pitch things over to you first, because I know this is a topic that has been near and dear to you for a long time. You, uh, you wrote your dissertation on, on uh, Union veterans and, and kind of carrying on the war after the war ended. So uh, tell me how that work has extended into this volume. Well, in, in The War Went On, we collect uh, 15 essays that really try to take Civil War veteran studies into some new directions. Uh, Evan and I both felt as though Civil War veteran studies in the last few years have become unnecessarily political uh, within the field. 
um, a lot of this is wrapped up in larger debates over the dark turn or neo-revisionism. And the field was, was kind of in a place where we were debating, well, were Civil War veterans maladjusted or were they well-adjusted? And it was kind of this false um, opposition. And I said, rather than debating this kind of unproductive question, uh, what if we looked at uh, diversity and multivocality among Union and Confederate veterans? What if we looked at these um, veterans as, as having a range of experiences after the war? You know, too often, I think, as historians, we pretend as though those enlistment papers are birth certificates. And <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the things that we get out in this book is that, of course, these men had um, political allegiances and families and communities and lives before the war that of course affects um, the way that they um, not only make their way through the war, but of course how they experience a transition back to civilian life. So we wanted to capture that diversity and just the, the stunning range of experiences and also invite our, our colleagues who write Civil War history to think about some new directions to get us beyond um, these kind of unnecessarily contentious debates. So Evan, let me ask you, how did Brian get you wrangled into this conversation? That's a good question. Well, you know, I've known Brian for a number of years and got me wrangled into a number of conversations over that time. So a lot of it, as he was saying, just grew out, grew out of sort of a joint frustration over where we thought, um, where we thought the field was, the conversations, questions like that. And we thought, well, this could be a way to um, spark some dialogue, hopefully in a, a good way. Um, and, and so, you know, initially I was thinking about, well, what, you know, what would I say in, you know, in a project on veterans, um, you know, and then my essay, which I can talk about a little bit, you know, is a, it's an outgrowth of the dissertation, which I'm currently revising now. Uh, and it talks about, of course, veterans that slipped across the border and fought in the U.S., um, sorry, fought in the, uh, the French intervention, you know, fighting against um, Maximilian, fighting for Juarez, seeing our civil wars as linked to these other conflicts. And, you know, I, um, so I, my, my interest in the project grew that way. And then, well, we expanded and um, some people moved in and out. We have a pretty stellar cast, all things considered. And, you know, one of the, um, one of the things we came back to is, uh, like Brian was saying, you know, what are the themes of the volume? And, you know, everybody who does Civil War veterans eventually at some point is going to have to talk about Jerry Linderman, right? The hibernation thesis. And, uh, did veterans hibernate? And, you know, we show that, well, the contributors have some disagreement there, right? Kurt Hackemer suggests if you look at the Great Plains, for instance, you can see some hibernation among veterans. Uh, Zach Fry suggests if you look in the context of veterans getting involved in uh, politics and campaigning for Winfield Scott or for Little Mac or for Garfield or whoever the case may be, I mean, there was really no hibernation there. My um, essay, veterans as political actors, you know, you don't see it so much, or some of the other essays in the volume, the, the wars that continue after the war. One of the things I think is really neat about that first section of the book, which uh, you actually titled Rejecting Hibernation, is there's this very apparent, uh, at least to me, this fanning out. The war ends, and these veterans kind of fan out and get involved and intertwined in all these different things going, as you say, uh, south of Mexico, going to the west, getting involved in their communities. And uh, it's, it's almost like this, um, I kind of saw it as like 
sending out roots and putting roots in and then making something new happen. Um, Evan, you want to talk a little bit about that since I know that you, you know, your essay was involved in that section where, where these guys are, are, are not going home and living these quiet lives, but in, in lots of different ways, becoming very involved in the world. Yeah, so, well, Brian and I have uh, batted this quote back and forth, uh, Reed Mitchell's vacant chair. One of the points he makes is, oh, well, during the war, soldiers idealize home, right? And you read how many soldier letters, oh, I can't wait to get home, oh, I can't wait to see the family again. And then they get home and they see the family again, and they realize, wow, I really don't want to be here, and I really don't want to see the family. And you're right, you start to see this migration of people. So, you know, with Kurt Hackamer, I mean, what do these veteran colonies in the Dakotas look like, you know? And, and he tells us that, well, for some people, it was a way to get away from the war, you know? And it looks at how many of these men were part of the 300 fighting regiments, and some of them had seen, you know, the worst of the Civil War, and they, they did need a place to sort of hibernate and get away from that. But then, you know, my essay suggests, well, there were some people who thought along the same lines that Grant or Sheridan did, you know, that our war couldn't end, as long as there was war raging in Mexico, that our civil war and Mexican-French intervention, they were part and parcel of the same conflict, so we have to go down there and, and do something. Um, and, and the veterans that Zach talks about, you know, their wars, you know, they, they swing back and forth in really wild ways, you know. Some of them are reluctant Lincoln voters, and then they become, you know, maybe more ardent when Horatio Seymour is the uh, candidate. And, but, but then by the time 1880 rolls around, Fry says, you know, a lot of the bitterness from the war seems to have sort of burned away for a lot of these people. And yeah, Hancock's a Democrat, but he's Winfield Scott Hancock, right? Why, why wouldn't we support him? He's our old commander, you know? And, and so we have these really staggering, um, uh, staggering array of experiences where people are moving into different geographical areas. But even for the people that maybe go home and try to resume normal lives. I think one of the things that Brian and I were trying to highlight is that, you know, their wars sometimes continue, but in ways that are both expected and unexpected, right? So Sarah Hanley Cousins has this very moving um, description of a veteran who suffered this grievous wound that left him terribly maimed. And, and his war becomes, well, you've got to fight against not the rebels now, but it's the state for a pension. And she talks about, you know, veterans having to submit uh, their bodies to state surveillance, and what does that mean in terms of our understanding of masculinity, um, which is a really interesting question. You know, there are veterans that are going to fight against each other, right? Who did more at the Battle of Cedar Creek? I mean, Jonathan Noyales talks a lot about this. Or in Stephen Sodergren's broader framing, you know, how are veterans kind of waging wars over the memory of the conflict in the Tribune? And Angela Riato saying, well, you know, it's all well and good. I mean, if you're if you're one of standards Vermonters at Gettysburg, I mean, that's a great memory of the Civil War, but what if you're a prisoner of war, you know, and, and how do you remember that experience of captivity and um, fighting over that? So these, these wars that continue long after the, the guns fall silent and the muskets are stacked, you know, it's not just, I mean, I mean, you're very right. It's a question of people spreading out, right? Maybe looking for some kind of distance, looking either to continue or to get away from the wars they go to somewhere. But even, again, the people that sort of went home, you know, processing these experiences and, um, you know, we'll have to get into some of these other essays as well. But, I mean, what do you do if you're a unionist in Arkansas after redemption, for instance? Um, you know, and what if you're relying on your neighbors to give testimony to support your pension, you know, who you fought against not that long ago, so... Anyway, I, I want to let Brian talk too. So I'm not 
<laughs> but it's one of the things I love about talking with authors about, about their works is, you know, you get passionate and you get passionate <laughs> about it. So I like, I just sit here and kind of nod my hand and be like, oh, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, we can get too passionate. Maybe sometimes <laughs> say too much. <laughs> Your your description of this uh, variety of experiences uh, kind of goes back to something that Brian really opened my eyes up about in his book, uh, Marching Home, where like the veterans as a whole didn't have a single homogenous experience. And, yes. and so you have this variety of experiences. And, and Brian, let me bring in here to talk about that because because you used a word a few minutes ago, multivocality. See, I can't even say it. Multivocality, um, where you've got a bunch of different uh, voices talking about a bunch of different experiences. How important is that to the approach you took for this book? It's it's absolutely central, and um, you know so often even in Civil War soldier studies, Jason Phillips has a wonderful essay uh, about the, the common soldier literature, and he suggests that historians have have really embraced kind of four archetypes whenever they talk about common Civil War soldiers. Right, they're race warriors, they're heroes, they're victims, or they're they're citizen soldiers, and I think we do the same thing with respect to veterans too, right? We either want them to be victors over the horrors of combat, or we want them to be to be victims. Uh, we want them to be well-adjusted or maladjusted. Uh, we want them to be waving the bloody shirt or, um, you know, completely um, embracing uh, the the spirit of sectional reconciliation, extending their hands across the stone wall at Gettysburg. Um, but really that the messy lived reality, the wrenching lived reality is somewhere in between. And veterans, of course, could embrace over the course of their lives, both of those identities. At sometimes they were waving the bloody shirt, at other times they were reaching out for uh, reconciliation. And so we wanted to capture something of, um, something of that diversity, something of um, the way that they changed over the course of their own veteranhood. And then, and then just the stunning number of cohorts of, of veterans. Uh, Rebecca Howard's essay uh, in this volume looks at unionists who live in, in Arkansas. Uh, Angela Riado, as Evan mentioned, uh, is looking at the ex-prisoners of war. We have two essays that treat uh, the experiences of African-American uh, United States colored troops uh, and uh, African-American sailors. Uh, so when you think about the, the, the many different roles and the many different experiences that folks had over the course of the war, certainly that feeds into the argument that um, what you experienced during the war is going to shape uh, how you experience veteranhood and, and who you were, again, before the war is going to shape uh, who you became after and, and how you were able to reintegrate into civilian life. I think one of the great uh, understudied questions with respect to Civil War veterans is, is looking at um, the impact of support networks back home, or the families back home, um, as a, a key factor in, in how successful a veteran's reintegration to civilian life would be. We, we know almost nothing about uh, that experience, right? Returning home to, to parents, to sweethearts, to, to spouses, brothers, uh, children. Um, again, so many frontiers um, left to explore. And we, we tried to deliberately in framing the table of contents for this volume um, to, to point to some of these oblique angles um, in places where we can move the field um, forward rather than uh, kind of these questions that um, you know, lead us to the same cul-de-sacs. We want to kind of move beyond the dark turn and, and, and think about projecting the field forward. Yeah. And I'll ask both of you to comment on this, and we don't have to get too far into this, but but you talk about these these non-constructive arguments or conversations that people have sort of 
politicized the field and things have gotten very binary and that's been inflicted on veteran studies. Um, why is there that tendency to think in this way or this way, as opposed to more of those oblique multifaceted angles that you guys are really exploring here? You want to take that one first, Evan? Or I was going to let you take it first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to put you guys on the spot. Right? Yeah. Right. yeah, I, I think uh, so much of it is wrapped up in these debates that we had uh, five or six years ago now about the, what some scholars call the dark turn, others have called the anti-war turn. Um, has this focus on the irregular conflict, on atrocity, on some of the darker aspects of, of the war. Has that really made mainstream what were actually atypical experiences, right? Um, and, and that worries um, some scholars in the field because I think what's at stake is the meaning and the character of the Civil War. This, what kind of war was this? Um, and, and so anytime that you trade into those waters, it's, it's going to be contentious. Um, I think we, we do as a field have a, a tendency to think in these um, these di start dichotomies. Again, we do that same thing with common soldier studies, right? Um, and, and again, we, we don't like to, to think about the messy lived realities or the complexities, right? Uh, especially the public that consumes so much of Civil War history. They want that history to fit on a buffer sticker and it's, it's much more complex. Yeah, more complex than a bumper sticker, more complex than a tweet, um, <clears throat> as we all know. But uh, yeah, and, and you know, Brian makes a good point. I mean, we, we do often think in terms of dichotomies, although I'm sure a lot of us in our classes chide students when they think in terms of dichotomy, well, that's not good historical thinking. Um, but, you know, and we don't have to go too deep here. Uh, even though there's been a transnational turn in US history, for instance, it's been kind of slow in catching up with the Civil War and Reconstruction in particular. So there's, there's a lot of places where we've lagged a little bit or where especially recently I think we've become more subtle and more nuanced about the questions we're trying to ask and um, that we're posing. I think is, is particularly, oh go ahead Brian. I, I think too um, because Civil War veterans studies as a field is is relatively new right um, we have a lot of big sweeping works of synthesis that are national in scope. I, I wrote one myself, and I think there's a tendency when you're writing on that scale and when you're thinking about uh, big categories, Civil War Army, Civil War veterans, there's a tendency right, to make big arguments. And what the field needs to do now is to kind of drill down and to complicate these big frameworks, complicate these paradigms, complicate these, these arguments. And, and that's kind of the natural progression of scholarship. I think you begin with a big sweeping argument and then folks come in and take it apart. Uh, well, but what I think is so um, particularly important about this book is that uh, because you do get into those nuances, um, this is a, a, a like a, a real, um, a, a vibrant and I think immediate issue when you consider the number of veterans today who are coming home from conflicts that are trying to reintegrate into society. Um, we remember how traumatic that was after the Vietnam War. Um, and so it, it's, it's an ongoing current discussion. And I think that your book helps um, offer some very important contextualization so we can understand how, how nuanced and complicated that process is for our own veterans today. I think you're, well, I mean, I appreciate your praise, obviously. And I think you're right. I mean, the book does gesture towards some of the problems we're still trying to work through. And 
every time we hear a set of problems with the VA, you know, a lot of people think, well, that's a relatively new thing. But I mean, just looking at some of these essays and the volume, it's clear that these are much older problems, right? And, and Brian and Angela and I did a panel at the 2018 Civil War Historians Conference. And my paper there was sort of the nucleus of, of my essay in here. Angela's was the same. Brian's was um, sort of a, a paper that he ended up publishing elsewhere. Um, but I think a couple of the ideas made it into his historiographical piece here too. And you know, one of the ways we framed that panel, um, it was about displacement. Um, you know, displaced people, and, and we gestured toward some of the recent problems that we've seen with veterans trying to reintegrate into a society that isn't, you know, that's very interested in sort of um, abstractly praising veteran services, but it's not always so interested in helping veterans um, make that bridge back in. And I think some of these essays do, you know, they, they show the point that Brian was trying to make, that there is no veteran experience, or there's multifarious array of veteran experiences, you know, and so some of the people who Sarah Hanley Cousins talks about, for instance, when they have to prove these wounds and they have to submit this testimony, they have to submit to inspection, you can see, I mean, that they are, there's this sense of resentment, you know, that they're subject to this kind of state surveillance or they have to prove that they did this. Um, whereas, you know, other veterans, I mean, they're obviously very proud of their service and you know, sometimes it's proud in ways that we would say would make sense, right? In the glorious charge at Gettysburg or whatever. Um, sometimes it's less proud, you know. We think, well, prisoners of war. I mean, that, that seems to go against a lot of what we, we think of. Historians have talked about this very active sort of rugged masculinity. I mean, can you be, can you celebrate a prisoner of war experience? Um, and, you know, some people wouldn't, but some people do. What a provocative question. Can you celebrate a prisoner of war experience? I know. And, well, maybe my framing was maybe commemorate. But uh, that's fascinating, though, because, uh, you know, the, the war was the central experience for so many of these guys. And mm -hmm. if you're in prison for a portion of your service, how does that affect the way you think about what you did and, and how you carry that on? So that's fascinating stuff. We're talking with Brian Matthew Jordan and Evan Rothera, co-authors of The War Went On, a new book from Louisiana State University Press that talks about uh, veterans after the war and their uh, ongoing experience. Of uh, the two of you pulled together um, what the press calls an all-star lineup of contributors and a very impressive array of folks. Uh, how did you go about drawing these folks together and, uh, and managing this project? So that's well, a, offer, I was going to say, I'll offer a few comments and then and again, I don't want to talk too much here, but um, one of the things that Brian and I batted around is if you do a veterans volume, I mean, there's always a list of usual suspects, people that you could include on the table of contents. And one of the things that we didn't want to do was basically do a usual suspects veterans volume. Now, you know, with no disrespect meant to the usual suspects, but the whole point here is how do we get um, new voices, you know, people who, I mean, a lot of folks in here are contributing to the conversation in veteran studies, but they're trying to bring different subfields to bear, you know, so some of that um, had to deal with how we solicited the essays, but again, I'm as, as Brian knows, I love the whole idea of emerging voices, right? So yeah. uh, I think that's a, a really cool approach. Brian, you want to chime in there? Yeah, I would echo what, um, what Evan said. We, we did not want the, the usual suspects, so to speak. Um, and we wanted folks who were really going to um, 
think about how to foster conversations with their own particular corners of Civil War history. So you've got Matt Halbert, who writes about the Irregular War, um, Matt Norman, who is uh, a Lincoln scholar, um, Tyler Sparazza, who really comes out of theater history, um, folks who are approaching the, um, the subject of Civil War veterans from really truly oblique angles to show just how rich and capacious this uh, area of Civil War studies is. One of the things that I'm probably proudest about with respect to this volume is that um, we solicited the list of, of contributors, uh, solicited the essays, but we didn't impose a party line, right? We didn't say that, um, you know, you have to fit your essay into this framework or this argument. And that was a calculated risk, right? Uh, we have 15 essays that come back and Evan and I both were delighted when we found that, you know, while there are some divergences, you mentioned, uh, you know, a, a couple of the contributors disagree about the hibernation thesis, but uh, by and large, um, you know, three major arguments emerged from each of the essays, right? And one of the most important arguments we haven't talked about yet, I think, is the extent to which Civil War veterans really were the first Civil War historians, right? David Blight, pretty famously in Race and Reunion, uh, wrote that Civil War veterans were the first Civil War buffs, but we really go beyond that to show that they were in, in a variety of ways, not just um, on, on pen and paper, but um, in, in submitting pension claims, in dashing off editorials to the National Tribune, in, in marinating in pus. Um, some of these veterans were um, very conscious of uh, their role as historians. And that I think is something that the field hasn't really um, um, taken seriously yet. And, and we hope that that, um, that is something that will emerge from this volume. And to go back to your, your previous question about what we can uh, take away from this project and apply to uh, the, the trials of contemporary veterans, I think that's one thing, right? That veterans need to have some authority over the narrative of their experiences. They need to have agency in the storytelling process. They need to, to, to maintain control of the story of their war. And one thing that was so troubling for many Civil War veterans is that they felt in the late 19th century, amidst the romance of reunion, uh, sectional reconciliation, they felt as though they were losing control of the narrative. Um, and that was perhaps more difficult to work through than what they had experienced during the war in many cases. Yeah, it, it, you know, and I think of uh, Grant writing his memoirs and, you know, on the porch at Mount McGregor saying like, oh, well, I think things are finally turning out okay, you know, just a couple of dissatisfied folks. But he thought that the, the war's narrative had finally been set and it unravels pretty quickly. And here's the, the, you know, if you think anybody had an authoritative voice, it would have been his. So I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for a veteran who um, doesn't have that platform that Grant once have to see that narrative unravel around him and have no control, no agency, uh, no ability to affect it. That's, that's gotta be, um, you know, distressing and, and existential. Yeah, and to look back from the, you know, from the ash heap of reconstruction to wonder, to ask that question, was it, was it worth it? You know, mm -hmm. what, what did we fight for? Um, uh, that's that's a question. You know the relationship between veterans and, and reconstruction, because largely because of the hibernation thesis. I think right. We've kind of punted, and we've many works on previous works on Union veterans suppose that um, Union veterans were somehow complicit in this dark bargain that achieved national healing at the expense of racial justice. And I think we're you know we need to pause before we we. Um, uh, 
malign Union veterans in that way. The relationship between veterans and Reconstruction is much more complicated than than um, than previous works have uh, as allowed. As uh, <clears throat> my co-editor here said, before we blame Union veterans for not, you know, solving every problem on the face of the earth, <laughs> which is true. And the point you were making, Chris, about narratives, and to speak to to Brian's comments as well. I mean, so we're we're thinking about these larger narratives as well. But you're right. I mean, what about the um, the guy who served three years as a private, and then yeah, he's, he's feels like he doesn't have control over this war. Well, does he? And I mean, Stephen Sodergren, I think that's one of the strengths of that essay. Here's a veteran's newspaper like the Tribune, right? And these guys are constantly writing in, and and we know this, right? They're fighting over the smallest, like really very small details when you get right down to it, and sometimes not so small details, and so. Sometimes it's not for them a question of, um, you know, the, the grand sort of sweeping narrative of the war itself. Sometimes it's as simple as, well, my regiment did slightly better than your regiment at Cedar Creek, or, or, you know, something like that, as the case may be. Uh, and again, to speak to another point Brian had made, we did not, right, impose any sort of party line. So it was pretty fascinating to line these essays up, to figure out the best order of the volume, and then to just see how some of them kind of flowed sequentially into each other, you know, how... Um, Moyalis and, and Sadegrin, again, without, um, you know, explicit orders from our part, I mean, they, they function together nicely. Um, you know, Noyalis sort of gives us a case study of the larger point that Sadegrin was trying to make. And some of the other essays do that as well. And um, that was very rewarding. And <laughs> I don't know if I should say this or not, but uh, my advisor at Penn State, I had two advisors, Mark Neely and Amy Greenberg at Penn State. And Amy Greenberg said, Never do an edited volume. It's like trying to herd cats. It's a waste of your time. It's, don't, she, she said, don't do it. And what I've heard from other people is that her experience, you know, what she said there is probably right. A lot of edited volumes are a never ending series of frustrations. But um, I and I are both like, yes. <laughs> no, I, ours, ours, I think it worked out well and it was, it was a net positive experience. And so I was, I was glad to be able to think, well, you know, one day when I'm talking to a young graduate student, I can say, well, a lot of people have had bad edited volume experience, but I had very positive ones to share. So. Yeah. Well, I, uh, the two of you have good partners to work with, so I'm sure that that helped out too. Yes. One of the things that I like about doing an edited volume is that I always learn something by, by looking at the contributions, and, and there's always something that inevitably surprises me. Um, what's something that surprised each of you as you were looking at the contributions that you got from this? Well, I mean, they're, uh, reading these essays, there are a number of little things that I, um, I thought were fascinating along the way. Just, you know, we mentioned Becky Howard's essay, you know, what was it like to be a unionist, basically a unionist in Arkansas after the Civil War? And, you know, we think there would be sort of an easy answer to that question, but she says there wasn't. I mean, a lot of it is sort of dependent on the specific veteran and their relationship with the community. And again, sometimes it was those very community members that they had fought against during the Civil War, often bitterly, who ended up giving testimony to help support their pensions. Um, or Adam Dombey's piece is sort of interesting in the sense that he says, well, you know, over time, these, uh, you know, people in North Carolina reimagine, you know, their service during the Civil War, and the state kind of gets complicit in that. Um, 
Oh, there were a number of other things as well. But of course, a lot of them escaped my mind. Uh, Jonathan knew we it's had because really I, I put you on the spot. That's why. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure, you know, three hours later, I'll have a beautiful, eloquent answer. But Isn't that always the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. That I uh, was going to mention. Jonathan, he writes about Grand Army of the Republic Memorial Hall, so the, the meeting spaces for the largest uh, Union Veterans Organization. And he's coming out of kind of an art history background. So he has a, a fascinating take on, on these spaces, but he really pushes back. I mean, much of the scholarship on war memorials and memorialization has suggested that kind of the idea of a living memorial uh, as opposed to a, a fixed inert soldier statue um, kind of emerges after the, the Great War, after the, and especially after World War II. But he kind of pushes that chronology backwards in time and suggests that really these GAR memorial halls in a lot of different communities across the North become living memorials and they kind of break down some of the veteran civilian divides in these communities so that you have civic organizations and religious groups sharing uh, the same meeting place with the Civil War veterans and Civil War veterans welcoming actively and consciously these other um, local community groups into their uh, reliquaries, into their meeting spaces, which I think is, is just a fascinating um, piece that pushes back against some of my own work and pushes back against uh, a lot of scholarship on, on war memorials in the 20th century. Yes. We're talking um, about the book. Oh, oh yeah. sorry. Just one more question. We haven't mentioned her piece, and I did want to. Uh, Kelly Meserek had uh, a fascinating episode, African-Americans in Veterans Homes. And, you know, uh, Leslie Schwamm did a, a big book recently on, called Emancipation's Diaspora, right? And Schwamm was interested in sort of reframing reconstruction, thinking about it in the context of the North, particularly in the Midwest. And, you know, as you can expect, it's not it's not a very happy story, right? When slaves are transported to the uh, Midwestern states during the Civil War, there's almost a riot in some cases. Um, Schwamm, Brett Campney, and others talk about um, racist violence of different types, everything from lynching to assault and stuff like that. And Meserek is interested in giving us a, a different story here, and, and one that we, I think people will find, I think people find all these essays fascinating, but um, that one too should make some people sit up and take a little bit of notice. The book is called The War Went On, Reconsidering the Lives of Civil War Veterans. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, let me ask each of you, um, is there something I haven't asked that you wish I had? Uh, a chance for to get one last little plug in on something we haven't touched on. I think that covers it. Yeah, I can't, nothing ever jumps to mind. And and I can see both screens. Not everyone can, and they both have these very pensive looks. Like, <laughs> very good. A great piece of scholarship. I'm really excited about it. Fifteen fantastic, multifaceted essays that really talk about how complicated the veteran experience was after the Civil War, with a lot of resonance to a conversation going on in our own society today. So I think a really um, important, useful, and uh, uh, cool collection of stuff, guys. I really want to congratulate you on your work. Uh, very excited. So uh, one last question. Um, your book came out in the time of plague. So instead of being out doing book talks and signings and, and things like that, what's it like having your book out uh, here in, in the time of the lockdown? Well, I always feel, you know, guilty because I know there are people with much bigger problems. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I've heard from some people who have ordered copies and, you know, they've been impressed and, and that's been nice. And hopefully when this, pandemic sorts itself out, we'll be able to um, 
you know, do some more promotion. Cool, cool. Brian, anything to add? No, it, um, the, this is also surreal. And we, we were very excited when we pulled together this particular cast of contributors because so many of us are, are grouped in, in different regions. And we thought, well, we'll be able to do so many fantastic events when the book comes out. Of course, uh, here we are in 2020. So. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, congratulations to both of you. The war went on, reconsidering the lives of Civil War veterans. Brian Matthew Jordan, Evan Rothera, thank you both for joining us today. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Yes, thank you. This was very fun. My pleasure. I'm Chris Mikowski. On behalf of Brian and Evan, thank you so much for joining us here at Emerging Civil War. We will see you online and on the battlefield. And a few quick production credits to add here onto the end of our podcast version. Technical support comes from our engineer, Jackson Mikowski. Thanks, Jackson. Our theme music comes from the Second South Carolina String Band. You can find their great music online at civilwarband.com. And don't forget to join Emerging Civil War online at emergingcivilwar.com. There are 30 of us historians. We're spreading the gospel of the Civil War every day, contributing free content. We would love to have you read along and be part of that conversation. Join us at emergingcivilwar.com. On behalf of Brian Matthew Jordan and Evan Rathera, I'm Chris Makowski. Thanks for joining us for the Emerging Civil War podcast. We will see you online and on the battlefield. Mm-hmm.